Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Fruit Loops Season 3, Episode 15. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white, straight, cisgender dudes. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, well, the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294, and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And if you're not on Facebook, you can join the discussion on Twitter or Instagram by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. 
all of the footnotes for each episode, which articles and other media we use to source this story. The music notes, all that stuff can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website at Fruit Loops Pod forward slash merch. If you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcast from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. So, Beth, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Derek Todd Lee, also known as the Baton Rouge serial killer. He prowled communities of South Louisiana for years before his capture and conviction in two of at least seven cases of rape and murder. Ooh, this sounds juicy. So uh, before we get into <laughs> it, I want to know, how you doing? I'm okay. I had kind of a shitty day. Um, it's Monday, so, you know, started out mm. shitty and people were annoying and, you know, mm. it was just one of oh. those days. I'm so sorry. I'm adding you to the prayer list right now. Um, <laughs> that's the word. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. No complaints. Monday is almost over. Uh, this weekend, I went to a free baby shark event with my daughter. And uh, it, it the event took place in South Phoenix, where we live. It's a poor black and brown part of town. And I, I'm a little bit perturbed because my problem is how heavy the police presence was at this event. I mean, there were tons of police inside the event, tons of police outside. And I wow. was thinking when you go to an event in like Scottsdale or like Chandler or all white Tukey, you are lucky to find one police officer anywhere on the premises. Yeah. So I'm just like, what the fuck, man? So anyway, but other than that, I'm good. Yeah. That's weird because it's a kid's thing. So that that's exactly. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Super weird. Um, but, uh, anyway, that's how they do. So now we're going to get into listener letters. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Hey there. <laughs> Thank you. So what do you got? We have some new patrons. Ooh, so I wanted that's to wonderful. give them a shout out. Uh, their names are Truyen, Vernelia, Candice, and Paul. So. Yes. Thank you guys. How about an extra one? There you go. Um, <laughs> thank you to each and every one of our super duper Pod Squad supporters. We see you, booze. Yeah. I also wanted to mention that I ran across a few messages on Facebook that got lost in the shuffle. I responded to them today, but one of them was two months old. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. If we haven't <laughs> responded to you on Facebook, it's because we didn't see it. And the best way to get a hold of us is by email. Facebook can be quirky, especially the pages. Uh, and we don't always see everything on there. Yeah, but continue to reach out. And remember, yeah. you can always call us, remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did we do the phone number already? Six oh two. Nine three five six two nine four. Remember it. Tattoo it in your brains. Um, yes. We got a wonderful email from Candice. I was super excited to join uh, Fruit Loops Pod Discussion Group, I believe, and become a monthly patron. Ever since I've discovered your podcast, I have binge listened and re-listened every chance I get. I cannot say how much I greatly enjoy both of your perspectives and your no BS opinions and breakdowns, especially culture porn. Aw, as a mixed person who grew up in a predominantly white small town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, it has been extremely difficult to find people who can relate to or share similar experiences with us. 
the podcast that inspires me every single day. I also loved your episode on Maury Travis. I lived in St. Louis. Get out of here for a decade or so. And your history breakdown as well as the description of the culture was spot on. Wow. Keep up the great work. Yeah, that's really nice. And you know you have people out there who truly appreciate all of the time and effort you both expend. So thank you so much, Candice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, now we're going to just take a quick break and then we're going to dive into the story when we come back. Hey everyone, this is Stevie Richards. When I'm not doing Stevie Richards Fitness, well, actually, when I am doing Stevie Richards Fitness Resistance Band Training Programs, I like to listen to my friends on the Voices of Misery podcast. They talk about literally everything and anything, some stuff that might offend you. So if you're not easily offended, don't subscribe because they say whatever is on their minds is actually, actually subscribe, subscribe. Anyway, you might learn something and check them out anywhere you can download and listen to your favorite podcast. And of course, check them out at voices of Okay. So Beth, who is our subject today? Today, we're talking about Derek Todd Lee, also known as the Baton Rouge serial killer. His killing spree began in the 90s and ended in 2003 and claimed the lives of at least seven women. There are probably more. Mm, Probably. All right, let's get into the stats. (laughs) Derek Todd Lee, a.k.a. the Baton Rouge serial killer, should be noted that at this point, in time, meaning the late 90s, early 2000s, there were several active serial killers in the New Orleans, Baton Rouge area. Um, His crime specifically took place from 1998 to 2003. He had at least seven victims, but as I said earlier, he probably had more. Um, But he also committed other crimes, like peeping Tom. Um, I don't know if that was a crime back then, but it definitely is one now. And he also um, committed rape, uh, burglaries, on top of all the murders. His known confirmed victims, and I say that because some are known, some are suspected, and some are unconfirmed. Um, Randy Muberer, 28. Gina Wilson-Green, 41. Geraldine Barr de Soto, 21. Charlotte Murray Pace, 21. Pamela Kinnamore, age 44. Pernicia Dean Colombe, 23. And she was actually his only known Black victim. And Carolyn Yoder was 26. Uh, his bag of tricks included stalking, ambushing, raping, beating, stabbing, and strangling. Um, so he uh, had a full bag. Uh, the crimes took place in Baton Rouge and Lafayette, Louisiana. And in the end, uh, he was sentenced to death on December 10th, 2004, but he ended up dying um, before that uh, for health reasons. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the setting and we're going to talk about the history and Um, all the good stuff. So what did you get, Beth? Baton Rouge is located in southeast Louisiana at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Baton Rouge is the fifth largest city on the Mississippi River and home to Louisiana's largest parish. Baton Rouge was named by French explorers when the French-Canadian explorer Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville visited the area in 1699 and saw a red cypress pole. And cypress is pretty um, uh, valuable, uh, a very valuable wood. And I'll talk about the loggers later, but um, there are people who make a lot of money, you know, sifting through the creeks and rivers in the swamps in Louisiana and Mississippi, in the Mississippi, um, to collect that expensive ass cypress wood. Um, The red pole, which some sources say was a tree stripped of its bark and others say it was stained with blood, marked the boundary between the Huma and the Bayougula tribes. 
the Frenchman called the tree le bâton rouge, Good job. <laughs> which translates to the red stick or the red pole. Archaeologists have been able to date habitation of the Baton Rouge area to 8,000 BC, which is incredible. Wow. So see, yeah. Christopher Columbus, whoever your name is, you didn't discover this land. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Sorry. Yeah, Happy Indigenous <laughs> Peoples Day. <laughs> the French built a fort on the site in 1719, and they named it for the post, Baton Rouge. The area was ceded to Britain in 1763 at the end of the French and Indian War. During the American Revolution, the Spanish overpowered the British garrison there on September 21st, 1779, and controlled the region for the next 20 years. Since European settlement, Baton Rouge has functioned under seven governing bodies. France had a hand in there, England, Spain, Louisiana, the Florida Republic, very short-lived republic, the Confederate States, and finally the United States. In the mid-1700s, French-speaking settlers of Acadia, a colony of New France in northeastern North America, which included parts of eastern Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and northern Maine, were driven into exile by British force. Many took up residence in rural Louisiana. Popularly known as Cajuns, descendants of the Acadians maintained a separate culture. Since their establishment in Louisiana, the Cajuns have become famous for their unique French dialect, Louisiana French, also called Cajun French. And they have developed a vibrant culture, including customs, music, and cuisine. Mm, I'll say. Um, if you ever watched uh, like the Noodlers or the Lager TV shows or the Gata Catcher shows, many of them are Cajun and, and have carried on these sort of Cajun-y traditions with their cuisine and customs and ways of hunting. Um, the most famous being Shelby, the Lager, and Trent Landry on Swamp People. Do you watch that show? No. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of oh. uh, reality TV. Oh, well, I'm a sucker for it. It's great. Um, but the way they, I mean, the, the way they speak, it's um, very unique. And they often mm-hmm. have to use subtitles um, when oh, so people are talking. So you understand what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so some of them have French last names and funny accents, or funny, that's not kind, but they have accents and even use Cajun French type words. Yeah. And in the true crime genre, in the documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest, Gypsy's father is Cajun. And uh, I kind of love the accent. Mm, Yeah, it is cool. Um, There were many French plantations in Louisiana that had many enslaved people uh, and their influence is still seen today. Um, I actually visited a plantation in Louisiana called the Whitney Plantation when I was a teenager, actually in 2001. And um, it wasn't, uh, it was acquired by German people, but um, the architecture is French Creole. And now it's a museum um, and you can tour it. If you get a chance to tour any plantation, you should take it. Um, But now there's like a sick, disgusting tradition of people having like parties and weddings on plantations. Don't do it. And don't go if your friends invite you. (laughs) There's a lot of old plantations around Baton Rouge. If you go on Google Maps uh, to Mm -hmm. Baton Rouge and then just plug in plantation, (laughs) the place just lights up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's really cool that there's like now this uh, revival of of trying, especially now that it's the, the anniversary of 1619 when enslaved people were first brought to the Americas. Um, and that was 400 years ago in August. 
Um, but uh, there's a resurgence of um, trying to restore the culture and the true history of what those what happened on those plantations. So right, people are right. um, taking good care of them. They're putting a lot more energy and effort and financing into tours that really um, are meant to uh, re-educate that the public on the history of the true. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to visit the Myrtles. It's outside of Baton Rouge because it's oh. supposed to be super duper haunted. <laughs> oh, but oh me, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the term Creole was originally used by French settlers for people born in Louisiana rather than in Europe. It came to be applied to African descended slaves and Native Americans who were born in Louisiana. But the word is not actually a racial or ethnic label, and people of fully European descent, fully African descent, or any mixture thereof, including Native American, may identify as Creoles. The term French Creoles describes someone of European ancestry born in the colony, and the term Louisiana Creole describes someone of mixed racial ancestry. Although I think nowadays when when people just say Creole like in everyday, you know, conversation, I yeah. I believe it refers to black people with like French plantation owner heritage, like Beyonce. Right. Uh, really, it means her descendants were raped by their slaveholders as enslaved people because it's slave enslaved people couldn't give consent. Yeah. Anyway, when uh, French mixed with African descendants and their offspring are, are again, they're referred to as Creole. And the most famous is Beyonce's mom, Miss Tina Knowles. Hi, hey, Auntie Tina. Um, they <laughs> tended to have fairer skin, lighter hair, but still they're black. Historically, Louisianans of Acadian descent can also be considered Creoles, but Cajun and Creole are separate identities. The cuisines are different too, which I didn't know until I started researching this. Mm -hmm. So learn something new every day. Amen. Cajun cuisine is simpler country food because the Cajuns were basically refugees with very little. And Creole cuisine is more complex city food because the cooks had access to more ingredients. Ooh, we should have done a culture corner, but that was good. Count it. Uh, <laughs> slaves in the kitchens of well-to-do members of society prepared the food. Because they had more time and resources, the dishes consisted of, lo of lots of different spices from various regions and creamy soups and sauces. Creole cuisine blends French, Spanish, West African, Native American, Haitian, German, and Italian influences. Cajuns didn't have the ability to refrigerate food, so they smoked and salted foods to preserve them. Creoles had access to and used tomatoes. Cajuns did not. Cajuns seasoned their food heavily, not necessarily spicy, seasoned. A Creole roux is made from butter and flour, while a Cajun roux is made from oil and flour. I did not know this. I Ooh. did not either. <laughs> Good to know. Look at that. <laughs> but in any case, the city of Baton Rouge has a thriving arts culture and food scene. It does. It does. I had my first alligator in Baton Rouge. It was oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, another famous fact about Baton Rouge is uh, about an uh, it's an, about an hour northwest of uh, New Orleans, and you may know that famous photo of Whipped Peter. Um, he's uh, it, it's a black and white photo of a, an escaped slave with horrendous scars on his back. Are you familiar with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he escaped from Baton Rouge from another plantation in Louisiana to the safety of a Union base there. So. Oh wow! 
little little tidbit for you. Yeah, here's a little more history for you. The Baton Rouge bus boycott in 1953 was the first large-scale boycott of a southern segregated bus system. It inspired the Montgomery bus boycott that took place two years later. Southern University in Baton Rouge is the largest historically black university in Louisiana. Shout out to all the HBCUs. Um, yeah. It's HBCU homecoming time. And if you check uh, the Fruit Loops timeline, um, I've peppered in some uh, HBCU homecoming um, videos and, and photos for for Yeah, you they're really fun. Take a look at it. It's, it's incredible. If you get the chance to go to an HBCU like event, stomp show, football game, anything go it it'll like it your edges will be snatched back like you will have no more edges that's how incredible it is um another fun fact about baton rouge is that it's the home of the lsu tiger stadium um and if you're into college football you would know um that their stadium is known as death valley because it's where their opponents dreams come to die So now we're going to dive into the killer's early life. So hit it, Beth. (laughs) Derek Todd Lee was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana, to Samuel Ruth and Florence Lee. Samuel and Florence never married, and Samuel left the family soon after Derek was born, going back to his wife, with whom he had several other children. He suffered from Mm -hmm. mental illness and eventually ended up in a mental institution after being charged with attempted murder. Florence was only 17 when Samuel left. Oh, wow. A young, young mom. Yeah. Um, Florence later married Coleman Barrow, a good man who raised Derek and his sister as if they were his own children. The couple taught their children the importance of education and to follow the teachings of the Bible. Very common in Black families. Yeah. Lee grew up like many children in small towns around South Louisiana. His neighbors and play pals were mostly from his extended family. Also, his play pals were all black like him. It wasn't safe to play with the white kids. The black boys were taught specifically to stay away from white girls. Historically, dating a white girl could get them lynched. Mm -hmm. Many of the high schools in Louisiana and the South held segregated proms until really very recently. Mm -hmm. I think there was an article in the paper in 2014 about a a high school that uh, had stopped having segregated proms. So this is really recent. Yeah, it might still even be happening. Um, Good grief, especially in today's America. Um, But Lee struggled academically. He was placed in special education classes and his IQ was tested regularly, which um, seems abusive to me. His IQ IQ ranged from below 70 to 91 throughout his school years. Although they were acceptable at the time, IQ tests are very, very flawed. A person's intellectual ability should consider short-term memory and reasoning and verbal agility. Uh, They draw false links between intellectual ability um, and race, gender, and social class, which have historically been used to say that certain groups are superior to others, which is bullshit. Um, Mm -hmm. So Derek's low IQ, I think we'll get to this in the takeaways, contributed to maybe low self-esteem, and we all know where that could lead. Yeah. By the time Lee turned 11, he had been caught peeping into the windows of girls in his neighborhood, something he continued to do as an adult. 
He also apparently tortured dogs and cats. So at age 11, he's already checking off some of the serial killer commonalities such as head injury or mental deficit, voyeurism, and torturing animals. At the age of 13, um, Lee was arrested for simple burglary. He was already known to the local police because of voyeurism, but it wasn't until he was 16 that his anger issues got him in real trouble. When he pulled a knife on a boy during a fight and he was charged with attempted second degree murder. And that's pretty intense, like charge for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. For pulling a knife and not injuring a kid. So I was curious about the race of the boy he pulled this weapon on. Um, Because the race of the party involved um, affects the charges, conviction rates, and sentences. I'm just curious, but I don't know. I couldn't find it. Yeah. And I don't think he got in any real trouble. Oh. So, I mean, he was charged. Okay. Well, then never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think anything ever really happened with it. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) At age 17, Lee was arrested for peeping Tom offenses. Um, I also wanted to note that it's kind of a shame that he like he didn't have access to the internet because maybe these peeping Tom issues wouldn't have you know come about. Right. I'm not here to kink shame or anything, but there is people are into like this sort of voyeurism thing that really it, it, it's it's a real thing. Go to Pornhub, you can find it. Um, and but there's a there's a safe consensual way for everybody involved to go about voyeurism, but this simply ain't it. No, that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) Although he was arrested several times as a teenager, he never went to juvenile detention. Lee dropped out of school in the 11th grade and began working as a pipe fitter for a construction company in Zachary, which is a small town just outside of Baton Rouge. Okay, good job. Um, In 1988, Lee married Jacqueline Denise Sims, a childhood friend. Soon after their marriage, Lee pled guilty to unauthorized entry of an inhabited dwelling. Over the next few years, the couple had two children, a boy and a girl. But at the same time, Lee was acting like a family man. He also cruised local bars and spent time drinking and having extramarital affairs with women. It's also been reported that he was physically abusive. Jackie knew about his infidelity, but she was devoted to Lee. She also became accustomed to his arrests. The time that he spent with girlfriends and in prison became actually a relief to her Mm -hmm. because the atmosphere at home when he was there was pretty volatile. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So that's it for the early life. Now we're going to get into the timeline. Take it away, Beth. Connie Warner, who was a white woman of Zachary, Louisiana, disappeared between August 23rd and August 24th in 1992. Hurricane Andrew swept through the area on August 26th, and her body was found seven days later near the state capitol, having been bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Because any evidence had been washed away, police had no leads and no evidence linked Lee to the murder. However, Lee was on the Zachary police radar. He had a string of arrests behind him, and the police suspected him in Connie's murder, but they had no evidence. On April 2nd, 1993, Michelle Chapman, who was 15 at the time, and her boyfriend, Ricky Johnson, were parked in a Toyota at the Azalea Rest Cemetery in Zachary when they were attacked by a large man. The man opened the back passenger side door and began hacking at them with a harvesting tool. 
Ricky blocked Michelle and Michelle crawled over the front seat and tried to start the car. When the man opened the car door, the dome light came on automatically. About two blocks away, Officer Eubanks of the Zachary Police Department was stopped in his police cruiser and in the distance in the cemetery, he saw a light and shadows passing in front of it. Eubanks drove down a narrow road into the cemetery. He saw something flit in front of his headlights for a second and then it was gone. His lights lit up the Toyota and the bloodied faces inside. Both Michelle and Ricky survived, and Michelle Chapman identified Derek Todd Lee as the attacker in a police lineup in 1998, so years later. But by Mm. then, the statute of limitations had run out on her case, and Lee was not able to be charged. Oh, man, that's that's too bad. In 1996, yeah, Jackie's father was killed in a plant explosion, and she was awarded a quarter of a million dollars. With the money, Lee was now able to dress better, buy cars, and spend more money on his girlfriend, Cassandra Green. On June 13, 1997, Eugenie Boisfontaine, a white woman who lived near Louisiana State University campus, was murdered. Her body was discovered nine months later under a tire along the edge of Bayou Manchik. Yeah, Manchik. There has been no evidence linking Lee to the murder. On April 18th, 1998, Randy Mabrewer, 28, she was a white woman, a divorced mother of a three-year-old son, disappeared from her Zachary home. Her son was found wandering around in the front yard the following morning. A bloody trail through her house ended with a pink garbage bag just outside the door. Her contact lenses were found on the floor, indicating that she'd been struck so hard in the head that they'd actually flown out of her eyes. I didn't know that was possible. I didn't either until I read this. It's horrifying. Randy's Mm -hmm. body has never been found, but DNA evidence later connected the crime to Derek Todd Lee. By 1999, Lee was back to living off of his earned wages because Jackie's inheritance had all been spent. Except now he had another mouth to feed because his girlfriend, Cassandra, had given birth to their son, who they named Diedrich Lee. In June of 1999, Colette Walker, who is 36, I don't know her race, but she was probably white because of of a comment a friend makes uh, later in the story, and you'll hear it soon. Mm. (laughs) She lived in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and filed stalking charges against Lee after he pushed his way into her apartment trying to convince her that the two should date. (laughs) I don't know you, (laughs) bruh. Yeah, she didn't know him. And she managed to get him out of her apartment. Um, And he left her with his phone number and suggested that she give him a call. (laughs) Okay, weirdo. (laughs) Wow, talk about game. Uh, Days later, a friend who lived close to Colette asked her about the black guy, Lee, who She had seen lurking around her apartment and had told her that he and Colette were dating. What? On another occasion, Colette caught him peeping into her window and called the police. And that's what makes me think that she was white because her friend asked her about the black guy. Oh, interesting. Okay. So even with his history of being a peeping Tom and various other arrests, Lee did very little time for the charges of stalking and unlawful entry. In a plea bargain, Lee pled guilty and received just probation. Against the directions of the court, he again went looking for Colette, but luckily she'd moved. Yeah, bullet dodged. Yeah. Um, During this time, Lee was arguing with Cassandra a lot. And in February 2000, the fighting escalated to violence. She started proceedings to get a protective order. Three days later, he caught up with her in a bar parking lot and violently assaulted her. 
Cassandra pressed charges and his probation was revoked. He spent the following year in prison until his release in February of 2001. He was placed under house arrest and was required to wear monitoring equipment. But in May, he was found guilty of violating the terms of his parole by removing the equipment. But for some reason, his probation was not revoked and he was not returned to prison. I wonder if maybe it was a clerical error or... Paperwork got lost somewhere. I don't know. On September 24th, 2001, Gina Wilson Green, a white woman, was 41. She was a nurse and an office manager, was found murdered in her home near Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. According to the autopsy report, she had been raped and strangled. Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We'd just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. Then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? (laughs) Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ. And then what? Well, (laughs) while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is I'm on level 393. Right on. (laughs) Yes, it sounds incredible. But if Mm -hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy in an imaginary (laughs) private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground at work or in line at the grocery store, one thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, It is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry. I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll Mm -hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Investigators determined that her purse and cell phone were missing. The cell phone was located weeks after her murder in an alley in another area of Baton Rouge. Weeks before she was murdered, she told a friend and her mother that she felt as if she was being watched, and she probably was. DNA evidence later tied Lee to the murder. On January 14, 2002, Gerilyn DeSoto, a white woman with 21, was murdered. Gerilyn was a student at LSU and was planning to attend graduate school in the fall. On the morning that she was murdered, she made arrangements for a job interview later that same day. She wanted to be able to pay for her upcoming tuition, and she was never able to make it to the interview. By the way, I wanted to point out a lot of a lot of these women, when you read their bios, were like nursing students or biology yeah. students um, at, at LSU. And um, just from what I recall, there are a lot of universities in that area, Louisiana, Lafayette, New Orleans area. Xavier's there. Um, LSU is there. Tulane is there. Um, there's just like a bunch of universities with like really strong um uh, nursing and um, biology and uh, medicine type programs. Science, so, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I also wanted to point out too that he was not targeting uh, sex workers and um, people like that. He was right. targeting um, students and yeah. moms and, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. We don't see that very much. No. Unless you're Ted Bundy. Yeah. Well, we don't need true. to talk about him. True. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, I I read that he was pretty charming. So even though he yeah. did bust into that lady's apartment and suggested that they date, <laughs> he was off right. that and, day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you look at his picture, he doesn't appear like he didn't look scary or threatening to me. He looked right. like that comedian Roy Wood Jr. on The Daily Show with a mustache. <laughs> Yeah, he, he like, looks he looks pretty benign. Yeah. Yeah. So Geraldine was found by her husband dead inside of their home. She had been brutally beaten and stabbed to death. Her husband ran to a neighbor's house to call 911 because he could not find their cordless phone. It had been taken. And now Geraldine's husband, who's a real winner, uh, was initially the lead suspect in the murder, especially after police learned that from Geraldine's friend and relatives that they did not have a good relationship and he was controlling and abusive. Like he would tell her to call him when she arrived at a destination um, or call him when she arrived at home. So he was just really, really controlling. Yeah. He also had something with their cell phones where he had an alert that if, if he hadn't mm-hmm. heard from her in a while and he, he was trying to get a hold of her and she wasn't answering, he would send her an alert like, you better call me. <laughs> right. And I think I think when he walked into the, the murder scene, like he he thought like he was pissed because he thought she killed her. Mad. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, police later had to rule him out because he was at work at the time of the murder and he could not possibly have had time to go home to murder her and then come back to work. Much later, DNA evidence was linked to Lee. Ooh, DNA comes through every time. Yep. On May 31st, 2002, Charlotte Murray Pace, who was a white woman and 21 years old, was murdered. Known by her friends as Murray, she was to become the youngest student in Louisiana State University history to receive an MBA. Wow. Yeah. Her roommate found her dead in their Charlo apartment in Baton Rouge. They had just moved into the apartment a week before her murder. And I guess her roommate was so, like, disturbed by this murder that she never returned to LSU. Wow. That's one source that I, I don't know if it's true. But anyway, there were signs that Murray had put up a powerful fight. Autopsy reports say she had been raped and she was stabbed over 80 times. There was blood all over the apartment. Police found DNA evidence that later linked the murder to Derek Toddley. On July 9th, 2002, Diane Alexander, she was a black woman of St. Martin Parish, was raped, beaten and strangled inside of her home. Alexander survived because her son walked in during the commission of the crime and Lee ran out of the back of the house. Alexander's son chased Lee and was able to get a description of the vehicle he was driving. And uh, at every scene, like he drives to all these scenes, but he uses a different car every time. Like there's a there's a white truck that belongs to a relative of his that he takes. And then there's a yellow a yellow car that he it's like was a seen at some Mitsubishi of the or something mm-hmm. yeah Alexander had details as to what Lee looked like on May 22nd 2003 she was able to describe Lee to a police sketch artist she was also able to give police information about how Lee had gotten into her home he had knocked on her door and asked to use the phone but police did not tie this crime to the Baton Rouge serial killer hmm. on July 12th 2002 Pamela Kinnamore a white woman who was 44 was murdered Pamela was a mother, a wife, and she owned an antique store. She was kidnapped from her home, beaten, raped, and her throat was cut. Investigators did not find evidence that her killer broke into the home. 
So Pamela's keys were in the door and it's likely she accidentally left them there, allowing the killer to walk right in. I've done that before. Have you? Yeah, yeah, I have. It's scary when you find them in the door. You're like, oh my God. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God. No, it literally happened. Yeah. By the grace of God, there go I. Yes. Um, The crime scene indicated that she was in the bathroom taking a bath and removing her nail polish when she was attacked. The only thing missing from her home was her cordless phone. Pamela's body was discovered four days after she went missing, concealed under bushes about 20 miles from Baton Rouge in an area called Whiskey Bay. Also found was a piece of phone cord that had been used to strangle her. It was later determined that this cord had been cut and taken from Diane Alexander's home. Shortly after this crime, a man came forward and said that he had seen a white man in a white truck with a woman in the passenger seat who looked to be naked and either unconscious or dead. A woman also reported seeing this. Police had a composite sketch drawn up and put out information asking for tips. And it's kind of interesting that everybody who, quote unquote, saw the Baton Rouge serial killer saw a white guy. Yeah, it is. Or like a a really tanned guy or, you know what I mean? Like they didn't notice that he was black. Yeah, they didn't think he was black. Around the same time, the FBI made up a profile of the killer, who they believed to be a white man, because the known victims were white, and the witnesses who saw the man in the truck described him as a white man. Authorities had not yet connected Diane Alexander's attacker with this killer. Um, Also, as we said at this time, um, there were a number of serial killers who were sort of active in the area. And the people in the Baton Rouge area were quite tripping. Yeah. Um, on November 21st, 2002, Trinesha Dean Colomb, a black woman, uh, was 23 years old of Lafayette, Louisiana, was grieving over the recent loss of her mother when she was kidnapped from her mother's gravesite. Her family told investigators that she had spent time in the Army and planned on joining the Marines. This one's really sad, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. Her body was found three days later after she went missing, about 20 miles from where her car was found in Scott, Louisiana. She had been raped and beaten to death. DNA was later linked to Derek Toddley. Carrie Lynn Yoder, a white woman, was a doctoral student in biology when she was kidnapped from her LSU apartment, beaten, raped, and strangled to death. On March 13, 2003, her decomposing body was found in Whiskey Bay, near the same location where Pam Kinnamore's body had been found. Unlike Pam's body, which seemed to be carefully placed and hidden, Carrie's body appeared to have been tossed from the bridge. DNA evidence later linked Derek Todd Lee to her murder. So that's it for the timeline and the, and the crimes. Now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Do you have been? The investigation had been hindered by the fact that the police in different parishes had not communicated with each other and the police seeking the Baton Rouge serial killer were looking for a white man. Also, Lee's methods varied with almost every single murder. Some of the victims were found in their homes, but two of the victims' bodies were discovered at Whiskey Bay, and one was found in a field in Scott, Louisiana. Some had been sexually assaulted, but others had not been. Most were white women, but some were black. Similarities between the crimes included the removal of cell phones and cordless phones and a lack of any signs of forced entry into the home. In August 2002, the Baton Rouge Area Multi-Agency Task Force was formed and communications between the parish detectives broadened or, you know, actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> when the composite <laughs> sketch of the suspected serial killer was released to the public, it was of a white male with a long nose, long face, and long hair. As soon as the picture was released, the task force became inundated with phone calls, and the investigation became bogged down following up on tips. You know, I'm looking at a picture of Derek Todd Lee. Uh-huh. He doesn't fit that description no, at all. No, not at all. It's for like the, the complete opposite. <laughs> yeah. For the next two years, 18 more women were found dead, and the only leads police had headed them in the wrong direction. What investigators did not know at the time, or in any case, did not tell the public is that there were two, maybe three serial killers responsible for many of these murders. Yeah. Because they believed the killer to be white, police administered thousands of DNA tests to Caucasian men in and around the general area of the murders. Having no leads, police then had a DNA company test the DNA left at the crime scenes. This DNA company generated an ancestry profile indicating that the suspect was 85% African, (laughs) which dramatically changed the course of their investigation. Police then knew they were searching for a black man for the January 2002 slaying of Geraldine Barr de Soto. Talk about messy poetness. Yeah, they really This is the that epitome of it. Yeah, <laughs> these cops are some messy assholes. On May 23rd, 2003, the Baton Rouge Area Multi-Agency Task Force released a new composite sketch of a man wanted for questioning. He was described as a clean-cut, light-skinned black male with short brown hair and brown eyes. It was said that he was probably in his late 20s or early 30s. Police in the nearby town of Zachary thought that they recognized the man as Derek Todd Lee, who had been on their radar for many years. They had actually contacted the Baton Rouge Police Department about him previously, but Baton Rouge were not interested because they were like, we're looking for a white guy. Yeah, they they really should not have ruled anybody out. <laughs> no, no, ma'am. No. Police and Zachary called the police in Baton Rouge to let them know the name of the suspected perpetrator. Around the same time as the new sketch was released, DNA was being collected in parishes where there were unsolved murders of women. At the time, Lee was living in West Feliciana Parish, and he was asked to give a swab. And I should say for our international listeners, a parish is like a county. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. Uh, in, in Louisiana is the only place that has them, I was going to say that. I think, I think Louisiana is the only one that has parishes parishes and i think it it, yeah it might be um i don't know i I was gonna say it might be a french thing oh i don't know i'm just pulling it out of my ass (laughs) i like what you've pulled (laughs) if you have more please share (laughs) um you know you're all cultured and stuff um investigators (laughs) asked for a rush job on lee's dna and they had their answer within a few weeks Lee's DNA matched samples taken from Yoder, Green, Pace, Kinemar, and Cologne. Whoa, guys. Uh, However, after he had been asked for his DNA, Lee had taken his family and fled to Louisiana, or fled from Louisiana. Uh, But he was caught in Atlanta and returned to Louisiana a day after his arrest warrant was issued. Newspapers suggested that Lee was responsible for other unsolved murders in the area, but the police lacked DNA evidence to prove these connections. After Lee's arrest, it was discovered that another serial killer, Sean Vincent Gillis, was operating in the Baton Rouge area during the same time as Lee, and his AKA is the other Baton Rouge killer. <laughs> I thought that was Did he really call him the other one? Yeah. Like the other yeah. white meat? 
the other cat bird killer. <laughs> wow. Man, he's second rate, yeah, I guess. Second rate. Um, <laughs> mm, how's it feel? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so now we're going to dive into the trial. So here we go. Uh, there was some argument that Derek Lee was perhaps incompetent to stand trial. During psychiatric evaluations, he scored an average of 65 on various standardized IQ tests. A score below 69 is considered to be the threshold for what can be considered intellectual disability. Lee, however, was deemed fit to stand trial despite his low IQ. In August of 2004, he was found guilty of murder in the second degree of Geraldine DeSoto and was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. And then in October of 2004, Lee was found guilty of the rape and murder of Charlotte Murray Pace and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. In 2008, the Louisiana Supreme Court upheld his conviction and the sentence of death. So he has at least seven victims, but was only convicted of two, two which right. I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. Um. So where are they now? I'll tell you, Derek Todd Lee, age 48, died on January 21st, 2016, just days after he was moved from his death row cell in Angola to a hospital outside of the prison. And Angola, it's one of the worst prisons in the United States. Yeah. Anyway, Lee died of heart disease. Uh, Diane Alexander published a book called Divine Justice, which is an in-depth account of her encounter with Derek Todd Lee. Lee's son with Cassandra, Diedrich Lee, was arrested last year for an accidental fatal shooting of a friend. They were playing with a gun, but they were shooting a music video. And um, there was a gun as one of the props in the videos, because you can't have a rap video without a gun, I guess. And um, he, uh, he, I, I think, um, shot it and then... Um, yeah, uh, he been an accident. He said that he didn't know it was loaded. He didn't think it was loaded. Yeah, and he shot it and killed his friend accidentally. So pretty sad. Yeah, so very sad. Yeah. In early 2003, an urban legend began to circulate that Lee was using the taped sounds of a crying baby to lure victims to the door. The Baton Rouge police denied this story. But a couple of episodes on the TV show Criminal Minds referenced the crying baby rumor, which fueled the fire. Um, and that story has been debunked by Snopes, so there's no... It has been? Yes. There's nobody... That would be a pretty... <laughs> I don't know. Pretty good trick. His, uh, uh, I think his M.O. was, I mean, at least with Diane Alexander, I think he probably used it with other ones, too, was to knock on the door and ask to use the phone. And he, like we were talking about, he was not very sinister looking. He looked pretty normal. And uh, Diane Alexander said he was a nice looking man. He was dressed nicely and she had no qualms. You know, she she wasn't worried about mm -hmm. it. So I think that's, mm -hmm. that's how he got uh, most of them to let him in, I think. Okay. That's all you need. You don't need a tape of a crying baby. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but then I, then, but then I was, when, when I saw that you said it had been debunked, I was like, well, has anybody asked him if he, does any impressions of babies? Maybe that's what he <laughs> yeah, That's possible. <laughs> I don't know. That was where my head went. So uh, that's it uh, for that part. Now we're going talk to talk about what we think made him snap and also our takeaways from the story. And the script says, I'm first. So here I go. I think that being labeled as having a low IQ is really, really damaging to children. And I think it fucked up his self-esteem. I think it led him to be angry, to develop um, anger issues. As we know, he began hurting animals, 
um, I think, to feel powerful and eventually began violating, raping and killing women to feel the same. Also, he was born in the late 60s and came of age in the 70s and 80s in the United States, where race relations were, if you can believe it, worse than they are now. And uh, generally, Black people had to stay away from white people to be safe, uh, especially, I, I mean, if you were employed by them, obviously, you would go to work and be respectful. But like anything outside of a professional relationship um, was not a good idea, especially relationships with white women. And again, this was in the South, which might make the idea of having a white woman like a forbidden fruit. And maybe he was, you know, into that. Yeah, I definitely think he he targeted white women because they were forbidden fruit. Um, why he felt the need to watch women through windows, rape and kill women, I don't know. Um, mm. I think you're... Well, remember, rape is a crime of power. Right. So it's not all about sex. Yeah, so I think you're on to something with that. His father left when he was a baby, but uh, he had a really good stepdad, and it sounds like pretty normal family. Um, unfortunately, Lee never confessed, and he never talked about his crime, so we don't really know what went on in his head. It's possible mm. that he did not have a low IQ, uh, just a learning disability, which made it difficult for him to learn in school, and that was the source of his anger, like you said, um, and I think you're on to something there. And one, mm. one of the shows that I watched about him, I think it was Forensic Factor, um, they were talking to the police and stuff, and uh, one of the policemen said that he was smart and his crimes were smart. He was he didn't think that he had a low IQ, so I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean the way he lured his victims and like that one girl who was at the cemetery. She was she was going to the cemetery every single day. Yeah, um, to visit her mom's grave, and so he obviously caught on to some of their patterns. Um, yeah, I and think he, he figured watched a way them in. and, and uh, followed them and stuff like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But he wasn't very organized because his crime scenes were pretty messy. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's a yeah. disorganized killer? Yes, okay. yeah, I think so. You're the OG um, at true crime. I don't know about this yeah, stuff. He actually <laughs> did not uh, bring a lot of weapons with him. He often used weapons that were in the home. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, they were pretty disorganized and violent, very violent. And um, yeah, something else that I noticed, cemeteries came up a lot in the stories. And um, he like hung around cemeteries he walked through mm -hmm. cemeteries like a, in Zachary, the police watched him a lot and he would park mm -hmm. on one side of the cemetery and walk through to the other side. I don't know. It was just kind of weird. And then um, the other thing was that he would take the phones, which which I thought was unusual, like the cordless phones and the cell phones, he would take them. And I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why either, but the, the cemetery thing, so in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, well, New Orleans, at least, is below sea level, so all of the graves in the cemetery are above ground, mm -hmm. and they're actually gorgeous. Like, people tour the cemeteries, so I don't know, maybe he really appreciated the beauty of all those gigantic <laughs> tombstones out of the ground. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really neat. Um, I mean, if you again, if you ever get the chance to um, check 
out. Yeah, I really want to go to Louisiana someday. Let's do it. Let's do Live it. Live show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us so when we'll... and where and we'll go. And we will be there. <laughs> yeah. And then also, can you Ven- Venmo us the money for our place <laughs> yes. and hotel? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll keep plugging along. Anyway, we just want to thank everybody for sticking with us. We are almost at 150,000 downloads. Wow, so awesome. Somebody's listening. Yeah, yeah. At least so we really, is. we really appreciate you. <laughs> so uh, now we are going to talk about how not to get murdered. <clears throat> so. If you love to climb and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we will just offer up generic tips. So because Lee would knock on the door, or at least we surmise he would knock on doors and ask to use phones and stuff like that, I found an article about how to handle it if a stranger knocks on your door. So here's a few tips. Do tell. Number one tip is don't open the door. Look out the window or peephole to see who's there. And then number two is don't pretend to not be home. Uh, which is something that I do. (laughs) (laughs) But if the person is a burglar, they might be casing the place to see if anyone is at home. So instead of pretending that you're not home, talk through the door. You can also Mm -hmm. install an intercom doorbell or install a video doorbell like Ring. You can also use Ring on your phone even when you're not at home. So you can talk to them and they think you're home. And it also works mm-hmm. with Alexa. I don't know how, but oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that works. But anyway, that's what they said. <laughs> Can't afford that. Okay. You can install a dummy security camera, which I didn't know was available. So a link to that will be in the footnotes. So when you're talking through the door or uh, through the intercom or ring, ask what they want. If you're a woman and they ask to speak to your husband through the door, say that your husband or father or brother, some other male, is fixing the bathroom faucet and can't be bothered right now or something similarly, indicating that a man is at home and or you can get a dog. Mm. If you can't get a dog, leave a large water bowl outside your door as if you have a very large dog. And uh, maybe a chewed up dog toy might help. Like if you have a friend who's got a dog. And uh, their dog yeah. has chewed up the dog toy. Uh, ask them if you can have it and just leave it outside your door. Any kind of evidence. That oh, that's you a great idea. A dog. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> if the person says that they need help or if you simply feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, trust your gut. Tell them you're calling 911 and then call 911. <laughs> <laughs> and think about your options before opening the door and be prepared with a plan of action. It might seem rude to not open the door, but 
just remember you're not obligated to open your door to strangers. That's right. Those are fire tips. Thanks, Beth. You're welcome. So now we're going to get into some serial killer or true crime news. So extra, extra, read all about it. Welcome to Fruit Loops News Hour. Uh, <laughs> water is wet and the sky is blue, and the police can kill black people in their own mm. homes for no reason. In Fort Worth, Texas, a black woman named Atatiana Jefferson, she was a mother of a young child, was shot in her home by police by a police officer as she was, wait for it, minding her goddamn business, playing video games with her eight-year-old nephew. Yeah, Jefferson's Christ. neighbor was concerned about her because I guess the door was open and it was like 10 o'clock at night and it, it had been open for like an, an hour yeah. or a couple hours. Yeah. And so he, and he hadn't seen her, so he was concerned. So he called the police to have them just go check on her. And we know what happened. And the police showed up. So there's tons of police uh, there's there's videos out there online um, showing the police cam and the police officer doesn't even announce himself. He just uh, sticks the gun in the window, shouts to the figure that he, it is Tatiana and shoots her in less than two seconds. Um, so now that neighbor is like torn up inside. He feels really guilty about yeah. having called the police um, to come check on her. Um, that police officer has resigned. And what's that? This just in? The police officer has been arrested this evening. Oh, that's good. So, um, you know, we'll see if any um, charges were brought. I just saw the update on Instagram. Oh, wow. um, so I we'll, was wondering we'll be who you were talking this. to. <laughs> what's, what's that Insta? Um, uh, so now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. So I wanted to shout out Top Boy on Netflix. Um, it's season one. It's like four or five episodes. I bitched the whole thing this weekend. Wow. It's about um, people in the hood in London. It's kind of like The Wire, but in oh, London. Wow. Um, so there's drugs, there's kids, there's immigrants from all over the African diaspora. And it's just about these people's experience. It's a drama. It's very suspenseful. Um, there is a lot of violence, um, a lot of swearing. I love their accents. Um, there's lots of different accents, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's a really, really good story. Ooh, I'm Boy excited to start that. I love the wire. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I haven't finished the wire because it's too many episodes, yeah, but this was easy to get through. Nice. <laughs> um, where can the people find our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. That's right. Well, it's been fun. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.